just be you is a common phrase used today. It's all about just be the person that you're meant to be. But what does that actually mean? How do we even know? How do we even live a life that we know is pleasing before God? Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about on today's podcast. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and let's get into it. Hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. Blessed to be with you as we continue this amazing study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we have been exploring for the last few episodes about what does it look like to be single? What does it look like to be engaged or to be married? And so we looked at verses 1 through 9 and the advice that the Apostle Paul laid out for people married engaged or single. And then from there, we transition into a very peculiar passage of scripture where we're looking at verses 10 through 13 and looking at the presence that a believer has in their marriage and when we are to continue to persevere, knowing that's God's will for your life, and then understanding what it means to leave in obedience, the marriage, because it's dishonorable to the Lord, whether, again, a spouse abandoned, deserted that individual. And remember, we are speaking to an audience of Christians. This is coming from Scripture to people who are sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ and dwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we dived into last time was, what are some biblical reasons for divorce? And I laid into this whole idea, this argument that Paul explicitly makes about this term enslaved called you to peace. And prior to that, using the phrase in verse 15, in such cases. So when he's just talking about desertion in such cases, and I was saying that sexual morality, idolatry, clearly, as we see in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Paul, or excuse me, Jesus had mentioned is adultery. But that's not the only reason because we have a lot of churches today who are teaching things that run contrary enforcing with bad theology. They're domineering, if you will, in the marriage. And that is not good. And we as pastors, and you you hear my passion in this because my friends, I'm telling you, these are complicated matters, no doubt, when it comes to problems in a marriage. And maybe you missed that episode. I encourage you to go back to it. But if you heard it, you're right there with me. Let's continue as we end this chapter with hope and with a, with a sense of prayerfulness and alertness of how we are to live our lives that are pleasing and honorable for God. But let us not dismiss or overlook many people who are receiving bad advice that are caught in a relationship with someone where they're being abused, where the conjugal rights are not being met. And so we dived into that and I explained using a biblical argument and what Paul is saying here and referencing to other scriptures, particularly looking into the context of the roles and responsibility of marriage in Ephesians chapter five, that if somebody is in an abusive relationship and they have attempted to reconcile and get help and they love Jesus 
and they want nothing more than to see their spouse repent and get help, but also to live a life filled with joy and to be protected, to be loved and cherished. That individual, as a follower of Jesus Christ, has scripture to support them to move on from this relationship. God does not require, command, or expect anyone to be in an abusive relationship. Full stop. And it it disheartens me, it angers me with a righteous indignation when I hear pastors abusing scripture. You want to talk about abuse. Taking God's word out of context and a very dogmatic approach with their denominational line and are forcing people to buy into an interpretation, a rigid one that is unloving, lacks discernment, and is not truly modeling what marriage ought to be according to the Lord. So my friends, if you are in any situation or you know of a situation, please take a listen to that podcast as we were diving into biblical reasons for divorce. So no, it's not just because your spouse died and you're a widow or a widower, you can get remarried to a, to a believer. And we'll be diving into that in a minute. So I just want to recap this. And it's not just sexual morality. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That individual who is in abusive, in such cases, I believe, is also referring to abuse, like being deserted. That's a form of abuse. Abandonment causes a lot of emotional scarring in an individual's life. When somebody who says, with the marriage vows, standing before the altar with you, till death do us part, to love and to cherish forever, and then they abandon you, and so this is something that I, I pray that more Christians would discuss, that more Christians would talk about rather than be uh, dismissive or think, what's well, none of my business. There are individuals in our lives that have been divorced or on the brink of divorce and we need to speak truth and love in those situations. And it could be as simple as saying, hey, you know I'm here for you and I know you're going through a lot. How can I help? Don't say, just let me know. Just say, I want to help. Point me into the right direction that can get you the, the help that you need. And if it starts with praying with them, if it starts with them sharing you, divulging some things that's going on in the marriage and there's not good signs there or there, there, or there are implications there, whatever the case may be, you are responsible as a child of God, as a brother or sister in that relationship to help that brother and sister. And so if they're in harm's way, we have to step in there. We have to stand in the gap for these people who are being abused, my friends, because a lot of them are being abused in silence. And it takes a real man and a real woman to not allow that to happen on your watch. God has strategically, divinely put you in that person's life for a reason. So let's not overlook this. This is important stuff. This is what Paul is dealing with right here, right now. So now as we transition into verses 17 through 24, and then we'll look at verses 25 through 40 in the next episode, and we'll end this particular chapter. The title here is, Be Who You Are Meant to Be. And again, in context, this is having to refer to us as an individual in the, 
in, in relation to others. And so let me just read you this particular portion of scripture and we'll dive right in. So this is where we pick things up in verse 17. It says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he has co- he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So, I mean, on face value, just reading that, it's very confusing. Got circumcision there, uncircumcised, bond servant, freed, freed man. What is going on here? All right. Now, we have to understand, first and foremost, this word, and this, is, this goes in context of the title, be who you're meant to be. When he says here in verse 17, starting a new section, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned. That word assigned is a morezo in the Greek. It means to distribute, to divide. Then it says, which God has called him, meaning as, as God has called him. Okay, so we are to live in accordance to God's will for our life. Now, this has to do specifically when it comes to our holiness, that we are to be set apart for him, that we're not to live according to our own wishes, our own desires, okay? And then he says, this is my rule in all the churches. So again, up to this point in verses 1 through 16, what Paul had been doing was confronting false beliefs that had been inhabiting the minds of the Corinthians, as well as their discontent with their relationships or their social status. So there's a lot of discontentment mixed with a lot of false beliefs. So where do you even begin when you're dealing with all these complications? And, and I have to just give a shout out in my love and appreciation for biblical counselors, anybody out there listening who have devoted their life to ministering and counseling families in conflict. May the Lord continue to richly bless you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for um, the work that you do. It's so, so needed. And all, again, everybody who loves on your friends and your family because we know all the complications out there. And there are a lot of problems that we in and of ourselves cannot deal with on our own. So Paul here in verses 17 through 24, what he does is he pastorally responds to all of these many and complicated diverse conditions he's addressing the different statuses of life that the corinthians are experiencing in an effort to minimize the confusion and also the stress right because what happens when we're confused when we don't know what to do so when he says lead the life that the lord has assigned so when we're saying be who you're meant to be what we're saying is when you when when people are talking about this in the biblical confines of the church we're saying Hey, live the life that God has assigned, that God has distributed, that he has called you to live. 
Now, this is interesting because, again, going back to the false beliefs, the Stoics emphasized fate, capital F, not God. So fate is the explanation of why things are the way they are. So that's just fate. We still hear that today. That's a false belief. Paul counters this false belief by explaining to the Corinthians that, no, it is God who plans out our lives. So let's go a little further, shall we? In the Greek, the word is peripatetito, okay? Peripatetito. If that's saying it right, that sounds very weird. Um, but it's the present imperfect, and it carries the idea to continue walking with force. So think about that. So only let each one lead the life that the Lord has distributed to him. And then it says to, to lead the life that he has lived to continue to walk in that calling with force, meaning that you're perseverant. No, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to give up. That's the notion here. That's what the implication uh, is being stressed here in the present imperfect. So God's purposes for someone, again, whether they're married, they're single, they're a slave, or they're free. This is, again, verses six, uh, 17, verse 20, verse 24. It's to make it their aim to continue to bring honor to God. So when you and I are living a faithful life, my friends, before God, we're not living for the riches of the world. We're not living for the social status of the world. We are to contently live out our lives knowing that we are blessed to have a relationship with Jesus Christ in whatever our conditions, whatever our circumstances, that we're not to let that affect our relationships and our service to Jesus, period. I mean, that is so richly profound for each and every one of us. If you just pause and think, am I being the person who I meant to be or am I letting my lack of social status or the current situation I'm in cause me to be so stressed that I'm becoming someone that God has not meant me to be, that he's not called me to be. Then he goes on to say in verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Now, Paul's using circumcision here because he wants to illustrate the principle in verse 17. Now, again, we just talked about what that principle is. And what's important here now is that this principle that he's talking about is that Jews should not attempt to reverse their circumcision. So don't try to become something that you're not meant to be. So like in this case with circumcision, Jews, you're not to attempt to reverse your circumcision and neither should Gentiles seek to be circumcised. And this is important to understand why this is such a situation that Paul brings up because we have to understand context. When the Greeks invaded Judea two centuries earlier, Okay, remember, this is in the mid-50s AD, in the first century. So two centuries earlier, they mocked the Jews for practicing circumcision. Subsequently, then many Jews attempted to reverse the procedure, and so they underwent what was called epispasm. Okay? And this, this, this procedure would make it look like they were uncircumcised. And this is something that is fascinating because I do believe this is what Paul's pointing to, that they're actually going into a procedure to make it look like they're uncircumcised. You're thinking, well, how would they know if they were circumcised other than the fact that they're Jewish looking? 
right, in their culture, the way they dressed as opposed to Greeks, right? So they de definitely stood out and then going to the synagogues and how they worshiped. But how would they know if they were circumcised because you're dealing with the, the private parts there, right? Well, Greeks would know if a Jew was uncircumcised, if they had gone through epi epispasm, because they would participate in athletics. And remember, in the Greek athletics, many of them would compete naked. Or when they would conduct business or they would talk politics in the Roman baths, they would be exposed to one another. So that's how they would know. And notice this all has to do with social class. So to look uncircumcised gave you access so that you can be in business with certain people, that you can talk politics to certain types of people or get involved in politics. Matter of fact, Celsus wrote in his book on this very subject called De Medicina during the Julio-Collodian period. So this was a big deal. And so this is, again, Paul understanding the culture at this time. So when he says, let him not seek circumcision, now he's referring to the other side of the argument where he's, where he's saying, and, and this is important for us to understand, that he's underscoring that a Jew doesn't change culturally when coming to Christ and neither does a Gentile if they get circumcised. Rituals or ceremonies is not what saves or sanctifies you. It is simply believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and confessing him as your Lord and Savior, John 1, 12, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And if you see Paul and Barnabas, they dealt with this very thing. Remember the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And we're told in Acts chapter 15, it says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was what people were saying. And then after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that the Lord had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees rose up and said, is it necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses? So this was a hot debate. So even people that wanted to become Jewish that were Gentile, they would require them to be circumcised and to keep the law. And so some of the Jewish people who were saying that they are followers of Jesus Christ now, and they believed that he was the Messiah, the sent one, who had come from the tribe of Judah, that he would save his people from their sins, they would still say, well, true salvation is that it's necessary for that person to make sure that they're circumcised and that they don't become uncircumcised. So this was an ongoing debate, whether it be Jews and Greeks. But Paul says here, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So again, this is a, in a line of what we just read in Acts chapter 15. And this is roughly around the time when Paul was already dealing with the Corinthians at this point in time in the book of Acts. So for Christians, this is what Paul and Barnabas were teaching as they were going throughout the churches led and ordained and sent by the elders of Jerusalem, one of those being the half-brother of Jesus, James. They send them out saying, hey, it's not about observing the law if you come to know Jesus Christ. That's not a sign of your salvation. It's about living in accordance with the words and the works of Jesus. And obviously what the early apostles, what the early church was teaching according to the teachings of Jesus that were fulfilled in the Jewish scriptures. So 
again, Paul even had to confront, as we know, Peter later, and in, 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 in this is actually prior to 1 Corinthians, and I taught about this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So up to this point, him writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has dealt with this thing, not just at the church, of, at the church in Jerusalem, the, the Jerusalem council, I should say specifically, but he also had to confront a fellow apostle, Peter, when he came to Antioch, he says he opposed him in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, because Peter was, was eating with the Gentiles, but once the separated, the circumcised party would come around, again, this is about social class. You can't have a Jewish person like Peter eating with the Gentiles, it's defiling him. And so they would be hypocrites. And even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. But it was Paul who saw this conduct conduct, and he stepped in to speak the truth of the gospel. And this is how he, he posed it to Peter. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Meaning you're being a hypocrite. Challenge to live like a Jew and you yourself are not living according to the law. But we don't live according to the law. Christ fulfilled the law. We live according to his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome and you're burdening these people and that's what hypocrisy does. So that's why Paul says each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So despite giving their lives to Jesus, Paul reemphasizes, um, and again, this is what's important. He reemphasizes that it's not about the social status. It doesn't mean that your social status changes when you become a Christian. I was just telling my son when we were studying history not too long ago, when you had the Edict of Milan in 313, prior to that, you had Diocletian and Galerius, and they were persecuting the church, and Diocletian accepted this notion that he had a right as the emperor to rid the Roman Empire from Christians who were not worshiping their pagan gods. And in order to enact paganism, they would force Christians out of their homes, out of their churches. They would demolish their churches. They would fine them. They would tax them. And of course, then they would kill them. And in the process, they would burn all the Bibles or scrolls or manuscripts that they had that pertained to their Christian faith. And that's what they did repeatedly. But then by the time Constantine comes in and Christianity becomes legal, sadly, and not entirely, but some of the sad reality when you look at history is that because Christianity became legal and just like the Jewish people were trying to uncirc be uncircumcised so they can hang out with the Romans and do business with them and, and have a higher class socially, over time in the Roman Empire, again, this is a few hundred years removed from this point here in Corinthians, they would say being Christian was the popular thing. So if you wanted to do business, you had to be a Christian. And so people would take on the name of Christian and yet they were not genuine believers. So each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So this is not about social status. Now, again, if you consider a new believer who wants to get out of a contract with a pagan partner or a slave is given the opportunity to be set free, take advantage of that. So he's not saying whatever situation you find yourself in right now, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out of there or don't get out of there. That contradicts what we just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. So there are exceptions here when he says that you should remain in the condition in which he was called. 
God has not called us to be an abusive marriage. God has not called us to live in a sinful life. God has not called us to be in partnership with a pagan. God has not called us uh, to be enslaving people or to be a slave. So again, if a slave had given the opportunity to be set free, we'll see that in a minute, then take advantage of that. The greater good is not to be overlooked in Paul's statement. That's the point. It's the greater good. It's the greater good that we need to be looking at that defines the condition of what we are to be aiming for. So were you a bond servant when you were called? So a bond servant is different from slavery. If you think about like in North Africa, the culture background study Bible says even full scale wars to free slaves had failed in the small minority of thinkers who rejected slavery in principle lack means to change the institution. Urban household slaves, the sort addressed here could face significant hardships, but at other times wielded significant influence and power. In a few cases, slaves of powerful aristocrats wielded more power than some other free aristocrats. Nevertheless, freedom was the better option when possible. Slaves who earned the money could purchase their freedom. In many other cases, slaveholders freed them to reward their service or because they did not want to provide for them in their old age. So again, we, we can't just see this term that's being used here. Of course, we know that any form of slavery is a moral evil. But in, in, in the instances in which Paul's addressing here is not specific only to that. As I mentioned here in the Cultural Background Study Bible, in the context, many people refer to as slaves they, they had the household name. They belonged to that family. They were part of that family. And many of them did business as a steward on behalf of their boss, their owner, okay? But now if people were able to earn money and then they can use that money to purchase their freedom, take advantage of that. And that's the point, my, my friends. A lot of times people think, well, you know, it is what it is and they give up. And the Bible's clearly not teaching just to give up and to accept your fate. We don't buy into that. We don't believe that. So physical slavery, we know, is an abuse on mankind. And we know that it displeases God. And as such, again, Paul, we want to make clear when he says, but if you can gain your freedom, Paul is not condoning slavery in any way. He is advocating for, uh, for the Corinthians who were bond servants to do whatever necessary within the law to buy back their freedom. Now, this is important because we see clearly when Paul took opportunity to advocate for the release of a slave, Onesimus. Remember in the book Philemon? He says to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who, he says, uh, I became a father during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all 
or owes you anything, charge that to my account, end quote. So here we see Paul addressing a situation where the current circumstances of Onesimus, he's praying for the greater good. He goes to his dear friend who is the, the, the owner of Onesimus and saying, hey, free the man and receive him as a beloved brother. And then Paul goes on to say here, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. So what we have to understand here in the context of scripture is that a freed man is a person who has rewarded their freedom. This is known as manumission. And it's and, and often it's given the it's the, 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 the person who goes from slave to free in many cases would remain on the property but would be given a different status and they'd also be given the family name of their former master. Now the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Commentary says this, on receiving their freedom, former slaves became clients of their former masters who were then considered their patron and who could expect support from them. So what Paul's using now, when he uses what, what a freed man was in the context of the culture and says that we are now bond servants, you're called as a bond servant of Christ, Paul applies this concept to show that before Christ, we were all slaves to sin. But in Christ, we are freed from the power and the penalty of sin. And not only that, but he also captures what the Hebrews went through when they were set free from the bondage of Pharaoh. And likewise, when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our great redeemer, we are set free from sin. We are now made alive. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 7 through 11. He says, for one who has died has now set us free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And he goes on to talk about that we become a freeborn person. That we are no longer dead to sin, but we are alive in Jesus Christ. So Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. That is the person we are meant to be. That is our identity. Is that we are a child of God. That we've been restored to our maker. And as a freeborn person, I am not to abuse. You are not to abuse your freedom that is given to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who rose from the dead, he says, that is what you will be someday. You will leave this body of death and you will have a spirit-dominated body. You have a resurrected body. So we are to consider ourselves, friends, as bondservants of Christ and not that we are enslaved. There's no terminology. His yoke is, is, is light, okay? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. So we are considered as bond servants of Christ. We belong to him and we're called to walk in obedience to his commandments. And as I said earlier, according to what John the apostle said, his commandments are not burdensome. So when he says you were bought with a price, do not become bond servants of men. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who bought us out of slavery. He's the one that, that freed us from the, the, the dominion of this world. He's the one that took us from the, the depths of hell. He's the one that took us from Satan. And, and so we don't submit our lives to social or religious pressures that circumvent our salvation. No, we follow the advice and the truth of what Peter tells us, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
That is important, my friends. So when he says, so brothers, in verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So if we are a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet you have a bad marriage, God hasn't abandoned you. If you have a prodigal child, God hasn't abandoned you. If you are having issues in your local church and you've been hopping around looking for a church to belong to, it's not because God is punishing you. It's not because God's commandments are burdensome. You are a freed man in Christ, a freed woman in Christ. We know that Christ, according to scripture says, who was raised from the dead will never die again. So sin will not have dominion over your body anymore. And when he says remain with God, that literally means that you have a persistent mindfulness of God's presence and favor in your life. So despite you are in a position where no one recognizes you, I was just talking to a young man and it's just a job. He's just a number. He, he, his bosses could care less if he stays or goes. And so, of course, he feels spending 40 to 50 hours a week in this week after week in this environment, he feels like a loser. He doesn't feel recognized. He doesn't, he doesn't feel seen. But that doesn't mean that he's less of a person because his social status in his work environment is less than favorable we are to remain mindful of the blessings that God has bestowed upon us despite our circumstances. It's not wrong to pray, Lord, help me through this, see me through this. I don't want to feel this way. Recently, I have a dear friend who was suffering some very, very painful ailments in his body and, and had to go to specialists. He's finally now, after a month plus, it has found relief. But in that time... He even told me at one mo- at one point in time, uh, I, is God punishing me? Did I do something wrong? What is going on here? And Paul's just reminding us that we are to remain with God. We are to have this persi- persistent mindfulness, just like my friend in the midst of pain, or just like this young man that I was counseling who, fe- he, who feels unseen. Hey, have a persistent mindfulness of God's presence and favor in your life despite your circumstances. Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. May that be true, my friends. In your life and in my life, in your family and in my family, that when we say that we are being who we are, we are meant to be, we are living a life that God has assigned us to live. We are living holy lives, not as slaves to this world, we're not trying to be something that the world wants us to be and try to find acceptance that way. No, we are, again, persistently mindful when we when, when Paul uses that phrase that we are to remain with God, we are persistently mindful of his presence and favor in our life, that we will honor him with our whole heart, that we will recount all the wonderful deeds that he has done for us and we will not complain, we will not grow weary while doing good. I pray, my friends, that to be who you are meant to be is to stand in the presence of God knowing that you're fully loved, you're fully seen. That's what matters the most, to have that eternal mindset, to know that your identity is in Christ, that you, 
and I will receive a resurrected body one day that this temporal life, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. So instead of pursuing the riches of this world, instead of trying to, um, you know, undo certain things, like a lot of Christians where they downplay their faith and they think, well, I'm just, I don't want to be argumentative and I just want to be tolerant and I want to love like Jesus did. No, don't shy away from who you are and what you need to say and what needs to be said in the culture. Be who you are meant to be in Christ and knowing that God will take care of the rest. Be that bond servant who's devoted and obedient to Jesus Christ. So I pray that's a blessing to you, my friends. Hey, if you found this message to be not just instructive, but convicting in, in a word that you needed to hear, let us know. You can always e- email us at info at Check out all the resources, all the biblical re- worldview resources that we have, books, articles, videos, and also the podcast, Challenging Conversations, and this one that you're listening to at the website, standstrongministries.org. Leave us a review. Make sure that you guys do that to continue to help push this in front of other Bible study apps and Bible study podcasts so we can get the word out. Share this on your platforms. Let people know about Stand Strong and the Word. I greatly appreciate that because if it's not you know, you guys doing that, then really um, we have a hard time getting the word out, getting God's word out there. And so join forces with us. Let us stand strong together as we stand strong in God's word and proclaim his truth to the rest of the world that needs to hear this. And if you also want to support a ministry that where you know that we are teaching people what the gospel is and we're reinforcing biblical truth in their culture, that we want to embolden Christians just like you and families just like you, that we want to equip you guys with the biblical worldview and teach you how to engage the culture for Christ. We would love for you guys to become a monthly donor. You can go to our website, standstrongministries.org. You'll see on the right top corner there, the word donate. You can click on that. You can see all the information about what our ministry is about, what we're doing. It's a nonprofit ministry that's tax exempt. We are a 501c3 and we are able to do what we do in all of the venues that we go to, conferences, churches, chapels, you name it. I just came from... Uh, Oklahoma teaching to 600 students, equipping them from teaching on the problem of evil to talking about how progressive Christianity is hijacking Jesus and then teaching parents from my latest book with focus on the family, parenting Gen Z, how to guide your child in a hostile culture. It, I'm able to do this because of many women just like you who faithfully give generously to help support this ministry so we can reach more families Uh, and ground them in God's word. So love you guys. I'm so thankful for what God is doing in your life. Let us know how we can pray for you. Let us know how we can partner alongside of you as well. And so make sure that you guys, when you listen to these podcasts, that you also take a moment and just pray for all of us. Pray for Israel. Pray for the Christian uh, church to continue to uh, sharpen and equip more families. And pray for Stand Strong Ministries that we would continue to fight the good fight of faith. Love you guys. Until next time, keep standing strong in the word of God.